I'm Maggie Williams. I'm the director of the Institute of Politics here at Harvard University. We're very excited to have Michelle Rhee with us tonight to talk about an education agenda for our next president. I want to introduce our moderator, Professor Paul Revel. He has a distinguished history of leadership in education research, policy, and practice, and is well-known writer and speaker on educational reform. Paul is the Francis Keppel Professor of Practice of Educational Policy and Administration at Harvard's Graduate School of Education, where he's been a faculty member since 1977. He brings a deep practical and personal experience to this conversation. He served for five years as Secretary of Education for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, where he was Governor Deval Patrick's Chief Education Advisor and oversaw the administration of higher education K through 12 and early education policies. And he has a wide range of education leadership positions in Massachusetts, including chairman of the State Board of Education, founder of the Rennie Center for Education Research and Policy, and co-founder of the Business Alliance for Education. He began his career working with disadvantaged youth as a VISTA volunteer. He was a high school principal and, importantly, a teacher. It is my pleasure to introduce Professor Paul Revel. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here uh, and an honor to be part of this forum on its 50th anniversary. Uh, we've got all the ingredients of a great evening. We've got a great guest. We've got a great topic to talk about. And we've got a great audience. Uh, the only thing we don't have a lot of is time. Uh, so we've got an hour to spend time together to, to uh, have a conversation with Michelle. Uh, so I'm going to spare you the joke up front. I'm going to spare you the long-winded philosophical introduction, except to say I think it's great that so many people turned out to talk about education in this presidential election year. Um, and I'll just say a word about the format. Our format is such that we're gonna have a conversation up here for about 30 minutes and then we're gonna open it up to you. Uh, you might be thinking in advance of a question, not a speech, note I didn't say speech, but a question that you have on the topic and please Identify yourself, there'll be four microphones around the room, a couple up there and a couple down here. Uh, so uh, we're going to take it away and get started. Tonight we have with us one of the nation's most celebrated and most controversial education leaders. Michelle Rhee has been working for the last 18 years to give children the skills and knowledge they need to compete in a changing world. Just a brief recap of her biography, with which I'm sure many of you are familiar. She began her uh, career as an educator, as a Teach for America Corps member, serving for three years in the Harlem Park Community School in Baltimore, Maryland. After that, she founded the New Teacher Project to bring more excellent teachers to classrooms across the country. <coughs> Under her leadership, TNTP um, implemented widespread reform in teacher hiring and placed 23,000 new high-quality teachers in these schools across the country. On October 12, 2007, Mayor Adrian Fenty appointed Rhee as Chancellor of the District of Columbia uh, Public Schools, a school district serving more than 47,000 students in 123 schools. She occupied this position for three years until October of 2010. Following her work at DCPS, Michelle founded Students First in 2011. It is a bipartisan national advocacy organization working through political and policy action 
to ensure every child receives a high-quality education. She led that organization until 2014. Currently, in addition to the Students First Board, Michelle serves on the boards of the Broad Center for the Management of School Systems, St. Hope Public Schools, and Scott's Miracle Grow. Michelle's, Michelle has a bachelor's degree in government from Cornell University, and most important for tonight's gathering, a master's in public policy uh, from this very Harvard University Kennedy School of Government. Michelle, welcome, and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I want to kick it off with a, an easy question that has to do with preparation and uh, how you get ready for a job like being chancellor of the DC Public Schools. You are an alum of this institution, as described. You had been a teacher, but you'd not had the conventional background of going up the ladder in a public school system. So I wonder, in what ways did you feel you were well prepared and how for the position you took in DC, and what were areas uh, that you wish you'd had more preparation? Sure. So. Um I don't know that anything could prepare you well for the job that I undertook. Um, but I, I will say, that I'm, so I'm somebody who, from one stage of my life to another, I never knew what I wanted to do. So people now will say to me, oh, I want to be uh, a school superintendent. Um, you know, what path should I follow? And I say, don't ask me. I'm, I'm the wrong person. Um, so when I was, you know, in high school, I never knew where I wanted to go to college. When I was in college, I didn't know what I wanted to major in. It was just sort of, I fell into things. Um, and I will say that, uh, that the program here um, was extraordinarily beneficial to me. When I um, was teaching and decided that I wanted to go to graduate school, I'd applied to a number of different kinds of, you know, I applied to law school, uh, public policy school, didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, and I got accepted here. Uh, and my mother um, finally was like, Harvard, go to Harvard. <laughs> and good Korean daughter, I couldn't let her down. Um, so I came, but what I really appreciated about the program was that it gave you a very broad um, spectrum of skills uh, that I thought was, um, could be applicable in almost any situation, but certainly um, was in my tenure in DC from my statistics classes to um, you know policy analysis that sort of thing um, so I, I I would say that um, you know while nothing could necessarily prepare you um, sort of being a person who was always sort of moving from thing to thing not exactly knowing what to expect I wasn't confined by sort of certain expectations for what my next job was going to look like um, and what I had to accomplish in it Okay, great. So you're tapped for this uh, huge job. Uh, you come into the job. I'm curious what your theory of action was as you, as you approached that job, when you, as you evaluated the school system, took a look at it from the outside. What did you think you wanted to accomplish? And then as you look back now, what did you actually accomplish? Where were you successful? Where did you fail? What are the residual signs of your leadership there? It's like, what did you do, Michelle? Um, so I, uh, as you alluded to, um, came into the job and was not um, what anyone was expecting. Um, so when I got to DC and the mayor kind of announced me as his pick, I think for about two or three days, everyone was sort of just in shock um, because I was the opposite of what people both were wanting and expecting. 
Um, I was a 37-year-old Korean girl from Toledo, Ohio, who had never run a school, much less a school district. And so I think everyone's sort of common thought was, what on God's green earth was Adrian Fenty thinking? <laughs> um, and that's, that's pretty much what I was thinking at the time, too. Um, I came in um, with uh, a, a belief um, in human capital, very specifically. It's, it's something that I feel incredibly passionately about and had spent 10 years building the, um, the New Teacher Project around, really believing that we can't change public education um, unless we ensure that everyone who is in the classroom every day, who is leading a school every day, who is working in a school district every day, is focused on the bottom line of students and student achievement. Um, so that was a real focus of mine. But I'd say that um, the, the most important thing was being um, aligned and on the same page with my boss. Mm -hmm. So the circumstance that I came into was that um, my boss, Adrian, uh, ran for mayor, um, and he says that, um, he, you know, he uh, went to, ha he, he, he says, this is urban legend, I think, I'm not sure, um, but he says he knocked on half of the doors in Washington, D.C., and spent a whole lot of time in people's living rooms talking with them about what they wanted in the next mayor. Um, and he said that every house that he went into, it was didn't matter if it was in the poorest community or one of the wealthiest, that everyone said to him, you have to fix the schools. If you're gonna take this job on, you have to fix the schools. Um, and so his second day in office, he introduced legislation that would allow him to take over mayoral control of the schools, and that involved um, uh, uh, removing the school, uh, the school board from the dynamic, um, and that the chancellor would report directly to him. So uh, it, was, it was he and I. Um, and so when we started, off. Um, neither of us had done this before. Um, I'd say that there are a whole lot of people who had said we were ill-prepared to take it on. Um, and what we decided, which I think was really important, was um, we said, okay, we are not going to fool ourselves into thinking that we are smarter, cuter, faster than anyone who's tried to do this before, right? Um, we can't just try to do the same things and do them better what we could add to the equation is to, to take a different path, to try something that has not been done before. And we had no guarantee that we would be successful in it, but we knew at least that if we weren't successful, then people would learn something different from our mistakes. Um, and so that was sort of our, um, our philosophy, is like we're gonna do things differently. Um, his mantra was always 100 miles an hour, Michelle the thing at every meeting he'd say, are you going 100 miles an hour, 100 miles an hour? Um, so he wanted change quickly. Um, and then I'd say the last thing was that everything um, at the end of the day always came down to kids and making sure that we felt like every decision that we made was in the best interest of students. Um, in terms of what we accomplished, um, I'd say that it wasn't nearly what we had hoped. Um, I, our, our goal, at the outset was um, we thought we were gonna have two terms in eight years. Mm -hmm. uh, and we didn't have that, we had half, um, four years. I think what we managed to do was to set the, um, the district on a completely different trajectory. Um, 
whereas when we found it and, and when we took over, it was the lowest performing school district in the country. Um, and and mo many people said the most dysfunctional. Um, after our first few years uh, in office, we became the fastest growing uh, district as it pertained to student achievement levels. Um, and another thing that I think happened, which was um, very significant, was we changed a 40-year downward trajectory in student enrollment, and we actually turned that around, and, and actually my last year in office was the first year that we saw an increase um, in enrollment. So I think we were gaining the confidence of families, slowly but surely. Um, but at the end of the day, um, we did not accomplish what we set out to in that um, what I had hoped was that we would um, close the achievement gap, that we would uh, be a district where um, race and income was no longer, were no longer the determining factors of um, student achievement levels. Um, we, didn't, we, we made some progress towards that, but certainly didn't achieve that goal. Mm -hmm. I wonder about the um, political implications of change fast, of going 100 miles an hour in this sort of an environment. And I know, uh, I, I read poignantly, you said, I lost the job I loved in this situation. You, were, you went from what Huffington Post called the, you know, the brightest star in the firmament of education reform, cover of Time Magazine, cover of Newsweek, uh, to all of a sudden, you didn't have the position you wanted. And that was all tied up in the politics of it. You a number of times said you're not really a politician, but yet you're thrust into a very political job. Talk about the political lessons uh, that you engaged in or that you learned from this experience. The biggest lesson is that I'm a terrible politician. Um, <laughs> I, um, I think that the biggest lesson that I learned was the fact that so much of education is political. Um, and I was extraordinarily naive when I came into office. I sort of felt like, okay, if I put my head down and just do the right thing and we start to see results, then people will like those results and want more of them and then we can stay. Um, and that was incredibly uh, naive when I, when I look back on it now. Um, and I'd say, you know, the, the, one of the biggest lessons that I learned was that what we were undertaking was essentially a political campaign, but mm -hmm. I, I, I didn't know it at the time, right? And one of the biggest things in a political campaign is messaging, right? Communication and messaging. Um, and I was a political novice. So for example, I'd never really dealt with the press before. And so when I first got into office, I made the enormous mistake of every time I went to a press conference, I would actually answer the press's <laughs> questions, which got me into a whole lot of right. trouble, right? Um, I didn't until later realize, like, you're not supposed to answer their questions. You're just supposed to say what you want to say, right? It doesn't matter what the question is. Um, and, uh, but I didn't know that, and I answered their questions, and... Um, but you also had sort of a truth to power kind of bluntness that was characteristic of the way in which you led. Do you regret that now, or was that the right track to take? Well, like I said, it got me into a lot of trouble. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it's my personality, right? So yeah. I, I tell the truth. Um, I, I'm a terrible, terrible liar. You can ask anybody who knows me. Um, so I just stay away from it. Uh, but it, it certainly um, did not help my case. It didn't mm. sort of help the kind of campaign that we were on. Um, 
in terms of me being so honest and being so straightforward and being so blunt. Um, you know, it, it often um, times got us under trouble because, um, you know, I would, for example, do a 30 minute long interview with a reporter. They'd ask me all kinds of questions about what we were doing that was good and that was sort of, you know, producing mm -hmm. results. And in the last 30, you know, seconds, they'd say, so um, what about if you have an ineffective teacher? And I'd say, well, if you have an ineffective teacher, then you need to move them out of the system. And then that would be the headline, right? And it sort of yeah. seemed like that was the only thing that I wanted to talk about. And that, honestly, that was a shortcoming on my side. Um, I can't blame anybody for that. It was just a miscalculation and a, and a lack of knowledge about how those things worked. So you had a huge fan club. A lot of people loved you and celebrated you. You also had a legion of critics. What did the fan club get right? So you got permission to brag. <laughs> and as you think about the different kinds of criticisms that were leveled at you, not just at the time, but in retrospect, everything from teacher evaluation to test scores to school closings to all the controversial things you had to engage in, what, what sticks, what, what's a fair criticism, and what are, what are things that are out of bounds? Um, what did the fan club get right? I don't, I don't know. I mean, sometimes I'm out with my kids. I have two teenage daughters, and every once in a while I will be out, and somebody will come up to me and say, oh, you know, give her Michelle ring. You know, can we take a selfie? And my kids are always like, what? <laughs> <laughs> um, so that always keeps my ego in check. Um, yes. I think in terms of the critics, um, you know, there, I, there were, there were a, a lot of criticisms about particular actions that we took, mm -hmm. um, and I'd say that a lot of those criticisms like, were right. You know, I did not make all of the decisions um, that ended up exactly the way that we wanted them to. And so if somebody came now and said, well, you shouldn't have gone to uh, K to eights, so you should have kept standalone middle, middle schools, I said, yeah. You know, at the, so at the, uh, a lot of the, those sorts of criticisms, I think, are absolutely valid, and I would never say that um, that every decision that I made was was a was a good one. Um, I'd say, though, that a lot of what people say about me not necessarily is unwarranted. It's just um, it's too simplistic, right? Mm -hmm. When people say, "Oh, you know, she um, she wants to blame teachers for everything," um, or you know. She doesn't like teachers, or she's too hard on teachers, that sort of thing. Um, and the reality is that's, that's not the case. Um, I don't think that teachers are the problem in our education, um, uh, uh, education dynamic. I think that teachers are the solution to the problems that we face. I have tremendous faith in teachers and their power. Um, I have seen it over and over and over again. Um, and so I do put a lot of stock in teachers. It's not that I think that teachers can solve every problem in society, but I do think that they can accomplish a tremendous amount with kids. And so, yeah, I put a lot of emphasis on them. Um, so I'd say that things are, are, there's always like a kernel of truth in probably every criticism about me, but it's the, the, the reality I think is much more nuanced mm -hmm. than kind of what it's made out to be. You sound like a pretty good politician to me. <laughs> no, like I said, I am terrible <laughs> at it. I wonder, you know, just while we're on a few specifics, I can't resist as an ed school professor to ask, you know, about the whole, you know, we're embroiled in a lot of controversy now about testing or about common standards and things of this nature. And we'll come to the presidential campaign in a moment. But you put a lot of emphasis on quantifying quality. In other words, uh, let's make 
hard judgments about who's doing a good job and who isn't, and for that purpose, we'll use the test and we'll use uh, value added or growth yeah. scores of one kind or another, about which you know there's a lot of controversy. In retrospect, is that the right way to go? Did we, not just in DC, but nationally, uh, did, we, did we try to adopt too many business type metrics to judging quality of teaching, or where are you on that whole controversy? Yeah. So I'd say that when, when we took over the school district, we had a teacher evaluation system where 98% of the teachers were being rated as doing a great job, were being rated as outstanding, excellent teachers, and yet only 8% of the eighth graders in the city's schools were operating at grade level in mathematics. You, you cannot have a functional system where everybody thinks they are doing a great job and yet you are failing at the very thing that we are supposed to be doing. So at that point I said, okay, we've got to fix the, the, the evaluation system. And at the time, everyone agreed. It, you know, teachers were like, this system is terrible. Um, and they didn't feel like they were getting a lot out of it either. Um, and so we knew we wanted to link um, student achievement to the teacher's evaluation in some way. Um, so we started uh, down this path of trying to figure out how should we link it and how much should it count. Um, and came up with a proposal that wasn't perfect, but we said, okay, 50% of the teacher's evaluation is gonna be based on how much their students grew, not what percentage of their kids were at proficiency because so many of our kids were starting um, behind to begin with, but how much did their students grow? Um, and then the other 50% would be based on a combination of observations of classroom practice, of contributions to school community, um, and sort of some, some basic kind of operational things. And um, at the time, we did not think like, this is it, this is the silver bullet, this is the sort of right mix, but we said, we know that what's, what's in place right now is not working, and so we've gotta try something else. And I am, one of the things I'm most proud of is the fact that over time, this um, evaluation system has been in place since 2009 now, and it's evolved a lot, right? It's changed, and so the, the percentages have changed and whatnot, and that's always what we had aspired to. Um, I think the unfortunate thing now is that the rhetoric is, oh, she wants to evaluate teachers solely on the basis of test scores, right? Mm -hmm. That is just untrue. I've never believed that. I don't know anybody in the education reform movement who believes that. And yet, because that's what people are saying, it really riles people up and gets people um, uh, sort of negatively motivated. Um, and that's why I, th I think we're, we've got a problem in the education debate right now because instead of having nuanced conversations in the middle, mm -hmm. um, we're having these polarized conversations where actually nobody but the boogeyman li lives. Um, so let me just be more specific about that. So we started with 50% of the teachers' evaluation being based on student achievement. Um, in Connecticut, as an example, the, um, the AFT, the teachers' union, signed on to a teacher evaluation system where 35% um, of the teachers' evaluation was gonna be based on student achievement, right? Mm -hmm. So, okay, great. Let's have a conversation then about that 15%. Because I'm not sure that 50% is right. You're probably not sure 35 is right. Like, let's try to figure out, should we pick 30 cities and have 10 of them do 50 and 10 of them do 35 and 10 of them do 42.7, whatever, right? And then let's just sort of see how that goes and, and talk about those things. But instead of having that kind of substantive and real conversation that would actually move 
the entire sort of system forward, we're having these crazy conversations about, well, she wants to evaluate teachers solely on the basis of test scores, and these people don't want any, you know, any kind of student achievement. And I mean, those are sort of the meaningless ones, and I think that's part of the challenge that we have. Um, but to answer your question, I think that when you start to measure things in a meaningful way and um, it's high stakes, then you're gonna have a lot of really strong feelings. Right, and, and when you put that, let's, let's assume for the moment, about which there's controversy, but that you can get valid and reliable indicators, then when you make it count and you make it important, that pressures the system in ways that uh, then you get sometimes perverse responses. That's not a reason for not doing it, but that it Absolutely. puts pressure on, on people to perform in ways um, that they hadn't before. And you had subsequently a lot of queries about cheating and yeah. scores adjusted and so, things of that nature. So I'd say this, I mean, what gets measured is what moves, right? That's a sort of common um, phrase that is utilized and I think that is absolutely right. Um, when you're not paying attention to it, when you're not sort of focused on it, then are people really um, kind of working towards something? Um, and one of the things that I am proudest of about the teacher evaluation system that we put in place is um, there are a number of studies um, that have come out recently that actually show that this specific teacher evaluation system resulted in more highly effective teachers staying in DC, more ineffective teachers and minimally effective teachers leaving the system, and resulted in higher levels of student achievement. Sounds pretty good, Pretty good right? set of outcomes, yeah. But um, I think that at the same time, what I would also say is that this system and others like it in other places have in some cases caused people to have an overemphasis on mm -hmm. the test scores in a way that is absolutely, to your point, perverse, right? So, yeah. um, which, which some people, in fact, argue is responsible for the whole backlash against Common Core. Against, absolutely. Against I mean, when you think about it, right, um, what parent doesn't want to know how well their kid is doing? whether the kid is on grade level or not, you know, that sort of thing. So the test itself is not, I don't think, the issue with anyone. I think what parents are pushing back against is this feeling that they're taking their kid to school and what they're hearing back from their kid is that the test is the only thing that matters, mm -hmm. right? So I have two kids myself, and I remember when my child, my youngest daughter was in the fourth grade, um, she came back um, from school one day in April, and I said, um, do you have any homework? And she said, no, we're not really, you know, in school anymore. And I was like, what are you talking about? And she said, well, the TCAP is over now, so we have field trips and we watch movies. And I was just like, this is what drives parents yeah. crazy, yeah. right? This, 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 because she was getting it from the school, obviously, right? So, so there are people who were basically communicating to her that once the test is over, then school doesn't matter anymore. And so what parent isn't gonna push back against that? Um, so I'd say there's sort of, you know, you gotta find the balance. Mm -hmm. um, we have to measure whether or not kids are learning and where they are, where we want them to be. But at the same time, um, it cannot be sort of this test cannot be the end all be all. You have to find um, something in the middle where people understand, yes, we are gonna measure results, but those are just an indicator of what we actually really care about in terms of student learning. Um, and again, the unfortunate thing is that's not where the conversations are happening. Well, you've touched on the conversation and, and um, I, I wanna go to the national conversation 
the campaign, which obviously involves a federal role and what you think about a federal role in education. You were in the nation's capital, uh, which happened to be D.C., and you were in the D.C. public schools. You know, we have, as you've alluded to, a lot of bipolar, oversimplified, dichotomized discussions on education. We have a lot of people out there with very strong rhetoric about what they don't like in education, not much uh, in the way of vision on where we're headed. If you were an advisor to one of the major candidates right now, what kinds of advice would you be giving them? What kinds of positions would you be trying to influence them to stake out on education? So this is why I am not a good politician, because I would probably not give them the advice that would get them elected. Um, <laughs> but we're still interested <laughs> in what you'd say. Because the, what I would want to say, whether it's either side of the, so I'm, so I'm a Democrat, um, and what I would want to say to Hillary would probably be the same thing that I would say to the Republican candidates is, come on. <laughs> like, you know what's right. Uh, I mean, these Republic, I, I'm sorry, so I am a Democrat. I, I don't dislike Republicans, but Republicans have lost their minds when it comes to <laughs> Common Core. Y'all are wrong on this one, okay? Common Core is just, I mean, it's obvious. You need a set of internationally benchmarked national standards to ensure that every kid, um, regardless of where they live, whether it's in Jackson, Mississippi, or Sacramento, California, or Kansas City, Missouri, um, the expectations that we have for them are high and uniform, right? There is nothing wrong with that. Um, but, you know, now Common Core has become this basically like a political football. Um, and it's because after Obamacare, it's like, what else do we want to attack Barack Obama on? Oh, yeah, let's say he's, you know, trying to um, take over, you know, the federal role in, in education, which is just ridiculous. And I'd say the same thing on the side of the Democrats. Like, come on, Hillary, you know you believe that charter schools are good and school choice is good and par empowering parents is good. You know you can't say it, but this is what the vast majority of Americans, like reasonable Americans, like believe in these things. And so I get that to get out of your primary, you have to sort of run to the extremes, but that is not where the vast majority of Americans are. Um, so again, not good advice. So I'm, I can't be a politician or a, a political consultant. <laughs> yeah, that, that's quite all right. There are lots of other options out there. <laughs> Um, let, let's um, you know, be thinking about questions because after this one I'm going to go to the microphone. So if you want to line up at the microphones, if you have a question, that's fine. Uh, talk a little bit, if you would, about the relationship of schooling as, we, as currently constituted to poverty. And this uh, talk about dichotomies, we get a dichotomized discussion between, on the one hand, people who say, well, there are no excuses. We, I don't want to hear about poverty or children's backgrounds if we get schooling right within the four walls and do the right things with the time we have. Everybody can come out as Horace Mann, hope they would, you know, with that schools are the great balance wheel, the great equalizer, we've got a meritocracy. Others believe there are so many factors going on in children's lives outside of school that influence whether or not they can benefit from school uh, as well as whether or not they do well in school that unless you're attentive to those outside factors, you're never gonna be fully successful in school. What do you think about that? What are the nuances in that discussion for you? Well, it's very similar to what I've been talking about before. The, the answer is in the middle. Um, and if you, um, there are lots of people who believe that I'm sort of the kind of, one of the captains of the kind of no excuses. The hard ass school. Yeah, that. The pricklies versus the gooey. Yeah, You're yeah. The queen prickly. Um, and so if you assume that that is correct and you, you know, want to hear what I say, does poverty matter? Absolutely. 
You just, there's, there's no way, when the kid is coming to school every day and um, they didn't eat breakfast before they came to school, they didn't have electricity in their house the night before so they had light to do their homework, they have a cavity in their tooth, uh, you know, that is causing them pain, you know, are they gonna be able to learn in the exact same way as a kid who sort of has all the benefits of life? No. That said, um, I'm a big believer that we cannot fix the problem of poverty in America today until we fix the problem of education. And the way that we break the cycle of generational poverty is to ensure that the next generation is well educated. And so new, no excuses for me is not like those things don't matter. Um, I think it is those things matter a ton and they put kids at a disadvantage, but we cannot allow that to be a reason why we do not push kids to excel and be successful in school. Um, so that to me is sort of the difference in all of that because there are so many stories of people, not just across this country, but across the world who grew up in poverty and the thing that saved them, who got them out, the thing that got them out of the poverty was because they got an excellent education. Um, so we have to be focused on that. And I think for people who say, you know, you can't hold schools accountable, we have to fix the problem of um, poverty first, I just think that's wrong. Um, if, we, if we wait, then we will be waiting forever, potentially. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and we just can't afford that. Um, so I'd say, from my camp, it's like doing things simultaneously. Because you have high expectations of kids, because you want to put them through a rigorous academic experience, um, that does not mean that you also can't have a health clinic at the school or free and reduced breakfast, lunch, and dinner programs to ensure that the nutrition is there. Those things are not you know, mutually exclusive. So high expectations and high and sometimes differentiated supports depending on what students Absolutely. need. Absolutely. Great. See, you should be a politician. <laughs> Okay, well, I thank you for a great opening conversation. And again, we've got only about uh, 25 minutes left in our time together. So I'm gonna ask questioners to um, identify yourself and uh, give us a brief question. Um, good, good evening, Ms. Ree. My name is Zan Okuda Lim. I'm a master's student at the Graduate School of Education, studying education policy and management. Um, you mentioned this phrase, going at 100 miles per hour, but that model brings to mind another model that rings true in the policy realm. That is, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Um, the Ed School organized a, a, a forum last fall with Kaya Henderson, the current chancellor. Um, she talked about her work with family engagement and engaging communities before making decisions affecting schools. If you could go back in time um, to when you were chancellor of DCPS, what changes, if any, would you have made with how you communicated and how you worked with families um, before making decisions that affected um, their families, the schools, and the children at the schools? Thank yeah. you. So that's a great question. And um, people often ask me, well, if you could go back and do it all over again, would you try to you know, sort of bring people along, maybe go a little slower, but do it in a way that lasts a little longer? <clears throat> and what I'd say is, um, you know, hindsight is always twenty twenty, but, um, as I said at the beginning, our goal was to try to do things a little differently than what um, we had seen before. And um, I, I'd say that what we had seen before in school districts was lots of, lots and lots of plans, right? Years and years of bringing committees together and then they'd put together binders of some kind of plan and 
the binders were all like sitting up on the shelf. And people might have been sort of pleased with how those processes work, but the outcomes just weren't there. Um, I remember, I, so one of the first things that I did, which caused a lot of consternation in the community, was I closed schools. 27 schools in the district, which was 15% of the schools in our inventory. It was a lot of schools, and people went ballistic. And it was interesting because right after I did that, I actually was in Cambridge for something, and this woman um, stopped me on the street. And she said, I just want you to know that you did it the right way, no matter how much people complain. And that was not what I was getting back home, so I was like, really, tell me more. And she said, um, she said, I was part of a school district who ran this two-year process for choosing the schools that we were gonna close, right? We brought the community together, we all set the criteria together, we looked at all the maps, we came up with all these plans. She said, and then the minute that all of these things resulted in the list coming out, she's like, everyone went nuts, including the people who had participated in the process with us. She said, so I went back and I called them all. She's like, hey, 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 you can't be mad. Remember when we set the criteria? And they were like, yeah, but we didn't know that our school was gonna be on it based on that, right? So part of the thing you gotta realize, I think as a leader, especially when you're in such a dire situation as we were, is you can't always please everyone. And when that is your goal, is pleasing everyone, then the likelihood that you're gonna get an outcome that you want on the time frame that you want it is not particularly high. Um, so, you know, could we have done things better uh, from, from that standpoint? Always. Um, but uh, should that have been sort of our goal? I think probably not. Um, I also think that things change over time and you need different leaders for different time periods in a trajectory of change. And I think that um, what we needed at the time was sort of a sharp, like things are going to be different. Everybody needs to understand that. And then as time went on, um, you know, things could sort of change and how we um, kind of went through processes could change as well. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Let's go over here. Hi, my name is Victoria. I'm an MPP2 right here. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about kind of the time delay problem with research and practice and policy. And, you know, you mentioned how the value-added measures that you laid out, we're kind of now seeing that those actually can be accurate and predictive, but, I mean, this is years after the fact. Yeah. So how would you, at this point in time, go about reconciling that space between the two and feeling confident in what you're choosing? Yeah. Okay, I got it. I got it. I, I have a message on this one. <laughs> So when we were trying to figure out impact and the value add model and that sort of thing, we brought together a bunch of academics, um, people I think from this institution and others across the country, right? And they gave us a ton of really helpful advice in coming up with this model um, and sort of how to put it together. Uh, but at the very end, we said, okay, we have to we have to choose like student achievement growth. Now that we sort of have it worked out, should count for what percent? of the teacher's evaluation. And at that point, every single academic like stopped returning my calls. And I was like, wait a second, what are we even talking about? You guys are the smart ones, like you know, you know? And they're like, oh no, we cannot engage in that conversation with you. It is too high stakes and we would not. I was like, okay, I won't tell anybody it was you. Just, just tell me what the answer is. I'll pretend like I came up with it on my own. And there was such a, a, a reticence and a pushback against from the, from the academic sort of world to putting these things into practice. 
and it literally drove me crazy. And I was like, y'all, if we wait until we have the proven evaluation system in order to change things, like, it's not gonna happen. Academia and studies and whatever, it moves so slow, and oh, by the way, you gotta have something to study, right? You gotta put something in place first. Um, so this belief that somehow, like, you know, people say, oh, we shouldn't experiment on kids, and, and you know, you put something in place that you didn't know worked, that is true, but we already know that the other thing that we were utilizing was crap and didn't work, so why are we gonna continuing with that instead of trying something that we don't know necessarily that it'll work, but maybe it'll be better. Um, so my sort of push would be for the academics to get a little bit more connected with the real world and be willing to take some risks and kind of get their hands dirty with some of these districts that are really struggling with these issues. Good, thank you. Sir, up there. Okay, thank you. My name is Jun Dong, a first year MPB here in HKS. So your path has always been to helping to help the children to achieve their potential. So in upon your graduation in HKS or in early stage, you have many options of your career. So as you as you said, you are a politically novice in the career. Then why did you choose that particular career that is potentially so controversial? Yeah, that's a good question. So. Um, I had worked for 10 years before taking the DC job um, as the CEO of the New Teacher Project, which is a uh, nonprofit organization that worked with school districts and state departments of education across the country on hiring teachers. And in that role, we worked with most of the large urban districts in the nation, and in every single one of them, I wanted to go home at the end of the day and like poke a fork in my eye. Um, it's like, why are you not doing these obvious things that, you know, will lead to higher quality teachers in your classroom or what have you? Um, and when the opportunity sort of arose for me to take this job, at first it was like, why would I ever want to be an urban superintendent? That's the worst job in the world. Um, but then the next thought was, okay, you can't just complain about the superintendents and what they're doing or not doing. You have to be willing to kind of take a walk in their shoes and see if you are gonna do any better. Um, so that's really what drove me was, um, you know, I, I, I thought I had not all of the answers, but you know, some pretty good ideas about where to head. And it was the opportunity of a lifetime, I think, to be able to actually implement those with a boss who was like, go. That's why I did it. Great. Yes, ma'am. Hello. Um, hello. My name is Rosie. I'm a, a mid-career PT, and I graduated. I'm a visitor today. Um, thank you very much. You're very um, ins inspiring. Um, I have a question about the change in my management. As you correctly pointed out, in the whole um, trajectory of the process, it required different uh, leadership. I'm wondering whether you can share some um, insights, like, uh, um, if you would approach the issue differently, whether you would try different approach, for example, instead of jumping to the issue or uh, point out the um, root, uh, root um, cause, you probably want to recruit a cohort of people, support you, follow you, and ready to do the change with you. Um, whether there should be some support from the board of directors and manage their expectation and potential pushback when you manage it down and uh, when, when you point out issues, potentially it will make a lot of people feel less competent as they sought to be. 
um, I just want to share a little bit um, um, more about this change management. So um, the potential leaders we're going to become will be prepared because very likely we will be posted in the position that we become into firefighters, but not necessarily people want you to, you know, put out the fire in five minutes. They probably want to see maybe 10 minutes we'll have a better situation, but firefighting is not the best case. But in your case, I, I'm wondering whether if you're going to do that in eight years, it will generate a better result. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think that's a good question in terms of change management. I think for every leader, you have to know your strengths and weaknesses and have to know what kind of a leader you are and um, in which circumstances you, um, you, you are most effective. Um, and so I'd say that you know, there, there is a philosophy of leading from the front. There is a philosophy of leading from the back. Um, I, because of my personality and kind of how I um, uh, like to kind of position myself, I probably wouldn't be a great lead from the back leader because I'm super impatient. Um, and so when people, you know, I'm like, come on, come on, come on, come on, let's go. Um, and so I am more of a lead from the front type person, but the circumstance that we were in, I think um, called for um, front of the pack leadership because um, people did not want to sit around any longer in DC where we were spending almost $20,000 per student per year and yet we had the worst outcomes in the entire nation. Like nobody really wanted to sit around and like talk about that anymore. People just wanted to know that something different was happening. And so um, I, I think that my leadership style was a good match for what the community needed at that point. Um, I, I want to also say one other thing, and sort of it, it um, goes with what you're saying. I think that the narrative that was created in DC um, a lot of the time was, uh, you know, Lee and Fenty were doing these things and the community did not like it, right? The community pushed back. And what I would say is that that was true in some ways and was not the case in other ways. There were a lot of people who supported what we were doing. I remember I was in Target one day with my kids on the weekend and I was pushing my little cart through and I see this lady, she's like looking at me and running to the aisle and like, I was like, oh my gosh, what is going on? And finally she came up to me and she's like, hey honey, she's like, don't let the crazy people run you out of town. <laughs> she's like, I've been in this city for, you know, in this, watching the system for 40 years and you're doing exactly what you should be doing. Keep going. But she wasn't, gonna you know, come to a city council meeting and wait all day long to testify. There, was a lot, there were a lot of people out there who appreciated the fact that we were moving fast, that we had a sense of urgency, that we weren't gonna be patient about the fact that 8% you know, of our kids were on grade level. Um, they just weren't organized in the same way that the opponents were. And I think that was one of my major takeaways that um, you know, giving voice to those people. It doesn't mean that everybody felt that way. It doesn't mean that that would have meant that there would be no opposition. I think it would have helped us to show that there was a balance in the equation, that it wasn't just this lopsided um, story that was sort of put out there in the press. Thank you. Okay, let's come down here. Uh, Michael Scott, Jr., in the school leadership program at um, Hugsy. And so I have sort of two wanderings listening. The first is, as you think about managing 
all of the stakeholders that were involved in this process. So you've got teachers unions, you've got parents, you've got other administrators, you've got community organizations, city council members, the mayor. How did you sort of get to a place where you were able to get the right people on board for the changes you were able to make? and then also manage your relationships with them to be successful, because I think it's hard to argue with the outcomes, but obviously the process was a little messy. And so the second wondering is if you can share how you made it through that. Um, and so not only is there me, but then there's three of my classmates in the front row who are aspiring principals. And so as and systems leaders, and as we think about going into this work coming the fall and long term, it's like that job is really tough but those kids in DC are on a much better trajectory as a result of it. And so as we think about that, can you share some advice to us that keeps us wanting to continue to do this work in spite of what pushback may come? Yeah. So one of the things I'll say is you, you said, no one can argue with the outcomes, but the process was a little messy. I absolutely agree with that. But I would also say, like, what process wouldn't have been a little messy, right? That, that got the outcomes that we wanted on the time frame that we got them on. Can you imagine how that could have happened in a nice, neat way where everybody was on board? I can't. I mean, I don't, I don't know anywhere where it has. I mean, I, I, if it has, then I would say, OK, go that route instead of what I did. But, um, but I've never seen it happen in a way where sort of you have that buy-in. To answer your question, though, I'd say for me, a lot of it, again, sort of is about personality. So one of the things about me is that I am not a super sensitive person. Um, all right, uh, <laughs> surprise, surprise, right? Um, and um, so I remember like early on um, in my tenure when we were going through the school closure process, which was very tumultuous, um, you know, I'd go into these meetings and people would just be yelling and screaming at me and calling me names and casting aspersions. And I'd come out and my staff would be like, Ugh. you know, like, like, oh my gosh, that was so terrible. And I'm like, it's all right. Like I, I, would, I would any day, rather deal with anger than apathy, right? The saddest school closing meetings that I ever went into were the ones where no one in the community freaking showed up. So I would rather deal with angry people screaming at me because they believed in what, you know, they, they cared, and then we could sort of duke it out as opposed to like nobody even thinks that this school can do any better, they don't care if it's getting closed or, or anything like that. Um, my, my mother, um, when, when I was going through that process, uh, came to town to visit me, and she, um, I, I came home from one of those school closure meetings, it was like 11 o'clock at night, she comes into the kitchen, I'm making myself a peanut butter jelly sandwich, and she's like, are you okay? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I'm fine, she's like, you did, know. Did you have to work at that? I mean, some people who coach leaders say, well, don't take it personally, it's not about you, it's about the position. Yeah, so people work at that, but uh, did you have to work so at it? So it was funny, because my mother, says, I, I said, oh, yeah, I'm fine, and she says to me, she said, you know, when you were little, you never used to care about what people thought about you. She said, and I always thought that you were gonna grow up to be super antisocial. She said, but I see now that it is serving you well. Um, so I, I think I, I had some of that in me all Good. along. Good. Okay, thank you. Let's go over here. Um, hello, my name is Alozia Modesta. I am a PhD student at University College London, and I'm currently participating in the Harvard Executive Education. Um, I just have a very simple question for you. Do you think that your gender as a woman affected the way people um, perceived your performance and also the way you yourself um, framed in, in negotiation for education. 
if you did, can you, are you able to share um, those experiences with us? Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, without a doubt, I'd say race and gender both played a factor in sort of how I was perceived uh, in the district. I remember early on when I um, was doing the work, um, a magazine uh, reporter was following me around and sort of wrote an article on me, and in it he wrote, um, in her slim black pants and Manolo Blahnik heels, clicking through the hallway. And I was like, if I was a 50-year-old white dude, you would never be writing about what I was wearing or what kind of shoes I had on. And I couldn't afford Manolo Blahniks anyway, so they were knockoffs. Um, but uh, there is no... Let's get that clear. Yeah. <laughs> no doubt in my mind that, that part of um, sort of how I was perceived and kind of the sort of consternation that people had was because of sort of gender and racial stereotypes um, about what I should have been doing and how I should have been handling the job. And I think, you know, me being forceful and frank and, um, you know, focused on accountability and that sort of thing, if I would have been a middle-aged white guy, I don't think it would have been um, as much of an issue uh, as it was because I wasn't. Okay, up here in the mezzanine. Hi, uh, my name is Heather Hamilton. I'm currently a mid-career student here at HKS. Thank you very much. I voted for Adrian Fenty the second time around and was really disappointed <laughs> at the outcome. Um, I just wanted to ask, uh, my mom was a second grade school teacher and tenure was very important to her because she planned to make a career of teaching. I don't know whether or not the second generation of teachers care as much about tenure. Um, I see a lot more movement in this generation. Do you think that's true? And what are the implications for future collective bargaining? Yeah. So I'd say this, that, that every effective teacher that I've ever talked to um, doesn't believe in what tenure has become, which is essentially a job for life regardless of performance. And it's the thing that oftentimes ensures that ineffective teachers can actually stay in the classroom and negatively impact kids for a very, very long time. No effective teachers think that that's a good thing. Um, but what effective teachers do care about as it pertains to tenure is that oftentimes they are subjected to arbitrary and capricious actions on this part of whack principles and that sort of thing, and they want to know that there are protections around that. Um, and so, again, it's about a balance, having something in the middle, right? Um, to your point, though, I think you're right that, um, you know, if you look at the kids who are graduating from college today, the research says that they will change careers seven times, five to seven times, in, you know, uh, while they're in the workforce, not jobs, but actually, you know, what they're doing. And so I think there is less of this feeling that I'm going to go be a teacher and I will be a teacher forever. Um, and some people think that's a bad thing. I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing. I think we have to understand that that is the way that this, you know, the new generation sort of is, is, is thinking about um, their job prospects and we have to adjust accordingly. Thank to, you. To what extent related to that, do you think that the sort of persistence of um, ineffective teachers is due on the one hand to tenure laws or on the other hand to ineffective management, people just who never evaluated them out when they had the opportunity to do them, to do that pre-tenure or even after tenure, which tenure doesn't exclude removing yeah. someone from performance. It's both, 
right? Yeah. So the reality is that in our school, school district, as in most school districts, the rules and regulations were so cumbersome that even when a principal was doing everything that they could, it still took you know, a quarter of a million dollars, two years, 10% of their time. And even after that, the, the teacher often wouldn't be um, mm -hmm. dismissed from the system. And so after a while, they were like, why even go through that, right? Let me just get them out of my building and then there'll be somebody else's problem. Um, but at the same time, there were also people who weren't actually doing what they needed to do. So, so it's a little bit of both. What we tried to do in DC was at least for the people who were putting the effort in to make it possible for them to run a process that was both fair to the teacher, but was also fair to the kids that weren't going to leave kids um, uh, languishing in the classrooms of ineffective teachers for years and years before we could make a decision that was in their best interest. So it was sort of finding that middle ground um, that I think was important. But once you do that, then there aren't any excuses and you have to have good management. Right. Okay, I got time for a couple more quick questions, please. Hi, I'm Devin, I'm a freshman at the college. Um, I was wondering, there's a lot of um, debate over the purpose of education. You said your child said that because the tests were over, they didn't have to go to school anymore. And in my high school, the purpose of high school was to get into college. Some people believe it's preparing for a professional career. What do you think the purpose of the K through 12 education is? Um, <laughs> I think um, for, in my mind, um, it is to ensure that kids have options in life, right? Not every kid wants to go on to college necessarily. Um, some of them may wanna go straight into the workforce, but um, that should be an option for them when they graduate from high school. They shouldn't be in a situation where they actually haven't taken the classes or have not gained the skills necessary to be able to go to college if they wanted to or enter the workplace and get uh, a, a, a job that would help to support a family. And so I think our job is to, um, to ensure that our, the next generation of American um, kids are productive members of society who have options and opportunities that they can take advantage of. All right, let's go to the mezzanine. Hi, Mr. Lee. I, I'm actually a DC native myself, as, um, and uh, yeah, I saw a great transformation growing up when you were cancer, and I had the chance to run with Adrian Fenty during his Thanksgiving trot. <laughs> anyway, I, I, worked, I worked for a nonprofit that taught chess in the DC public schools, yeah. and I was just curious what role you see specifically chess in elementary schools, but also nonprofits. Uh, like Boston, we're in the mecca of educational nonprofits, and what advice you have for educational nonprofits <coughs> to work with schools to see the change that you want, we all want to see? So I'd say nonprofits can play a huge role um, in education reform. I would challenge nonprofits, though, to think outside of the confines of their particular model and what they want to do, and really figure out how to be partners with the school uh, district. And what I mean by that is, you know, there were some unbelievable uh, nonprofit organizations who, for example, charter management organizations who were doing great work in DC and running schools. And I said, okay, you're running those schools really well, like why don't you take over one of our failing schools? And they'd be like, oh no, no, because 
you know, our model says that you have to start at fifth grade only with 50 kids and then build up. And I'm like, well, yeah, we don't have that time for that. Like, like think outside the box, have a new model. And they're like, eh. Um, and, uh, and so I would really sort of say that, that it's necessary for nonprofits to kind of push their thinking um, as well to, to meet the needs of the school district. Um, and in particular on, on things like chess, I think that one of the saddest things about um, the, the students that were attending DC public schools um, was that you, you saw they had such potential and such amazing aptitude and they didn't have the exposure to the kinds of skills and experiences that kids you know, in the wealthier parts of town did. Um, but once they had that exposure, like you could not stop them. And so I think that you know, chess in schools and other programs like that sought to level that playing field and give kids more of the same kind of exposure, which I think is absolutely critical. Okay, we've got time for one last question, which we'll take right over here, and then we're gonna close out. Hi, I'm Carolyn Libby from the Kennedy School. Um, I wanted to ask, following up on the teacher tenure conversation, how significant do you think the lawsuits like Vergara are in California that challenge tenure and last in, first out, and if it's upheld and it, those are revised, how significant will that be in possibly moving the needle on student achievement and reducing achievement gaps? So I think that um, Vergara is necessary in the state of California. This is a state where um, you know, we couldn't get legislation voted on that would have allowed uh, it to be easier for school districts to um, fire sexual predators who were in the classroom, right? We couldn't even get that to a committee vote. Um, that's sad. And when you're in that kind of environment where the legislature is that uh, recalcitrant, then sometimes you have to, you know, um, bring change through litigation. Um, I think, though, that at the same time, it is important not to overemphasize what the courts can do, right? So even if the best outcome were to happen from Vergara, which says, you know, state Supreme Court says, okay, you know, this stuff is unconstitutional and come up with a new way to evaluate teachers, a new way to lay teachers off, you know, et cetera, um, it would still have to go back to the same legislature that won't do what they're supposed to be doing in the first place, right? So the likelihood that they would do something that would sort of, you know, appease people but not actually change the system would be high. So it would be a moral victory and would, I think, help bring attention to this problem, but the lawsuit in and of itself is not gonna solve the problem. I think this is where it comes back down to politics and my belief that the vast majority of Americans actually know what is good and right and know that these sort of common sense changes need to happen. But the reality is that the vast majority of these individuals are not paying attention to this stuff and holding their elected officials accountable, right? When I, when I uh, travel up and down uh, the state in California and I say, you know, we couldn't even get this legislation to get sexual predators out of the classroom past, they all gasp, right? And they're like, that's unconscionable. And I say, Actually, it's actually very um, rational. And now let me tell you why. I said, do you know who your state representative is? Almost nobody can name their state representative, right? And I said, so you not only do you not know the person, you certainly don't know what committee they sit on, and you definitely don't know what votes they're taking in that committee. But you know who does? The teachers union. 
They know every vote that every single legislator is taking and they hold them accountable. You vote the way we don't want you to do. We're gonna run somebody against you. We're not gonna you know, contribute to your campaign, et cetera. And they have no pressure from their constituents to do otherwise. So they're acting in a very rational manner until the general public gets up in arms about these issues and starts to hold their elected officials accountable for the crappy decisions that they are making, nothing is gonna change. Okay, thank you. Absolutely. I wanna make one statement, then I wanna ask, take the chair's prerogative to ask one last yeah. question. So thank you for being here and for your frank answers and putting so much out there. I think uh, a lot of us have the experiences the first time I've met you and to have a 360 degree view of who you are rather than the media stereotype is really helpful and really a great benefit for all of us. So thank you for thank that. You. I wonder what's next for Michelle Ree. I mean, you, uh, uh, you've got a lot of energy, you've got uh, a clear vision and a lot of deep convictions. You know, you've worked with students first. I know they're in transition now, but uh, what's next for you? I actually don't know. Um, mm -hmm. But, I, you know, like, like the rest of my life, I think that, like I said earlier, things just sort of happen to me, like opportunities just fall in my lap. And so I don't have the next step um, planned out right now. Um, I can't imagine not being involved in education and the education reform movement. Um, but I don't exactly know what that'll look like. Fair answer. So I'm open. Fair <laughs> answer. Thank you so much Absolutely. for being with us.